Hear these words from Revelation 7. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It is great to see you, especially if this is your first time. We're so glad you're here. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors. If I haven't gotten to meet you yet, I am looking forward to it. One of the things that I like to do in my preaching, just to kind of mix it up, uh, try something new about once a year. I don't get too crazy. But once a year, what I do is called Audience Participation Sunday. So welcome to Audience Participation Sunday. I want to ask you a couple of questions and just right from where you are, you can just kind of shout out a, a quick answer. What you just heard from the book of Revelation was a vision of this glorious eternity that we have to look forward to where sin is no more, creation is, is renewed, everything is beautiful and incredible. And we get little glimpses here and there of this, this glory that comes into our world as it is. And so uh, one of the ways we experience the glory of God, believe it or not, is through something as simple as a great meal. So tell me just right from where you are, it can be a few words, it can be a sentence, what is a great, great meal that you've had that's like giving you a sense of just like transcendence and glory and wonder? What's a great meal that you've had? Steak, wine, and wine. Steak what and wine? Polenta, my goodness. All right, Oliver. All right, who else? Great meal, it could be the experience. Ooh, chicken and shrimp Alfredo. I like two of those three words. I don't eat cheese, but it started out great. Thank you. What else? A lot of pasta, right on. We're pro-gluten in this church. That's not an official position, but I am pro-gluten with Julie. So now let me let me shift gears. What about the the greatest musical experience you've ever had? Maybe it was a concert or a symphony. It was certainly some form of live music, but but a time when when music just wrapped you up in glory. It almost felt otherworldly, like you were in uh, you know some other place just because of the music. What comes to mind?
Mozart, beautiful, Mozart, right? Ava Brothers, with a good friend, yes. Weezer. Weezer, blew out, okay. Well done, I can tell what year you were born. About the same year as me. Kanye. Kanye, thank you so much, you see me, you know me, you know that's the answer I wanted, easy, thank you. Anyone else? What's that? This morning, yes, beautiful worship, Coldplay, I heard that too. You too. You too, there you go, you know, I just said it. Okay, last, last one. Uh, scenery, nature, what is the most amazing place you have ever been? You're at the edge of the ocean or mountains or somewhere that just absolutely took your breath away. What comes to mind? Grand Canyon. Beautiful. Thank you, Jack. What else? Alaska. Yes, I love Alaska. Crater Lake, yeah. where is that? Oregon. Oregon, my goodness, beautiful. Just sounds nice. Cliffs of Moher. What's that? The Cliffs of Moher. Cliffs of Moher, is that Ireland? Oh my goodness, that's next level. <laughs> so cool. Is that Princess Bride? You know where they're climbing out? Is that, you know what I'm talking about? Is it? I think that it yeah. is, but. Maybe. Yeah, we can find out later. Anybody else? Most incredible place. Okay, let me get, I'm not gonna give you my answer for all of them, but let me just give you my answer for the nature one. Because two years ago, right about this week, uh, Jesse and I and our boys, we went out to Colorado. We spent a week in Breckenridge, one of our favorite places on earth. But we timed it because we knew uh, some of my friends from my bike team were gonna be out there as well. So we went out there for a family trip. But on the Thursday out there, I met up with my bike team so we could do this ride together. Now, Mount Evans is one of the 14ers in Colorado. So 14,000 feet, and it's the only 14er that actually has a paved road that you can walk or bike all the way to the top of. So it's kind of like this awesome challenge. And me and a, and a group of friends, there's probably 15 of us, uh, we set out from the little town at the bottom, which is at 7,000 feet, and we rode up as high as we could. And one of the most amazing things that, that happened in that day, I mean, it was like, as you get over 11, 12, 13,000 feet, you're above the tree line, so there is like nothing living anymore. Uh, the temperatures drop from 75 to 35. There's no animals up there other than those like mountain goats thing, things that just like run straight up cliffs, you know what I'm talking about? But the most incredible thing was watching clouds come in beneath us. I had never experienced that. I mean, these clouds are at 10, 11, 12,000 feet, but we're literally looking down on clouds like you would from an airplane. So it was like a storm was rolling in, but it wasn't above us, it was actually below us. So you could see rain clouds unfolding rain, and you knew you were gonna have to come back down through them. We were actually looking down on clouds. I mean, you could look for like 100 miles in every direction. It was incredible. It, it, it was truly otherworldly, like it was an out-of-body experience. And yet at the same time, if you looked down and you knew where to look, you could see this tiny gray line, and it was I-70. I mean, you could barely even make it out. But as you look down from like this heavenly vantage point on top of a 14,000-foot mountain, you can imagine that people are down there like cutting each other off and like honking and cursing each other out because it's just a different place in that moment, right? 
But the reason that that sticks in my mind so much is that it, it almost felt like I was caught somewhere between heaven and earth. It was this little glimpse of creation as, as beautiful as it gets. The, the wonder and the glory of how God has designed our world. And we pick this up in all sorts of ways. We pick it up in, in good food. I mean, in an absolute feast with friends or family. We pick it up in musical experiences of not just artists that we love, but people that we love to be with. And, and it gets us caught up in the moment. And then search, certainly nature, when we're out in the glory of God's creation, we see all that he's made. And it tells us things that are true about him. See, all of these things are little glimpses of creation as, as it should be and as it could be. In fact, they're little glimpses of the new creation of what it will be like when everything is as it should be. After Jesus' return, when, when the new heavens and new earth come down, when this earth is completely renewed and it's completely without sin, without brokenness, without death, how beautiful each one of these things will be. We think about the food in the new heavens and new earth, that this is just a tiny glimpse in taste here on earth. If even the best meals here on earth are just a tiny glimpse of the feasting that we'll do in the new creation. Imagine the music, the symphonies that we'll experience in the new creation. Imagine the scenery. If this is what life in a broken world looks like, imagine the mountains. Imagine the oceans. Imagine the scenery. So the reality is everything that we've experienced here on this earth is beautiful and powerful and amazing as it is, none of that can even come close to comparing with the new creation that we'll enjoy for all eternity. But there's one thing even more. Because even all of the, the riches and the glory of the new creation where we spend all eternity, even that is nothing compared to the glory of God in eternity. And so you can imagine in the scenes of Scripture, there's this incredible scenery, incredible music, incredible food and drink, and yet what are people doing? They're not worshiping the mountains, they're worshiping God. In the presence of the sanctuary of the holy triune God, they are pouring out their praise to God. So we're going to look at this morning from the book of Revelation. There's three things that I want to look at. The hope of eternity, the worship in eternity, and then how eternity's worship shapes the here and now. So the hope of eternity, worship in eternity, and then how that worship shapes here and now. Now, I know that some of you are huge fans of the book of Revelation. It's your favorite book. You've got it partially memorized. You know what all the trumpets and the seals and the bowls are for. You know, you know who the Antichrist is and, you know, what the day of Jesus' return is going to be and what 666, all of it, you know what all of it represents. And for that, we congratulate you. But other, others of us can struggle with the book of Revelation. I mean, if you compare it to the rest of the New Testament, there are far more symbols and images. It's, a, it's prophetic or apocalyptic literature, which means we have to read it a little bit differently. And it's so easy when we look at the book of Revelation to get caught up in all of the details and numbers and symbols. And yet one of the things that could not be any more clear when you look at the book of Revelation is what people are doing for all eternity. Worshiping God being together, enjoying the new creation. I mean, the eternal life that we have in front of us is absolutely mind-blowingly beautiful. 
And I want to suggest that Revelation is an essential book for life in Christ today. I think it's a timeless and a timely book, and not because it gives us special insight into the future or what's going on in like American politics, but no, Revelation is always a timeless and timely book. It holds out before us the hope that we have in the world that is to come, the life that we have in Christ. And I don't know about you, but I can always use an extra measure of hope the reality is that our future hope, it's not like worldly hope, which is like, I hope it doesn't rain today, or, or even more seriously, I, I hope it's not cancer. Worldly hope, hoping for things here and now, is not a bad thing at all. But if we only have worldly hope, that's, that's certainly not enough. Instead, we have a, a sure and a, a future hope that is the renewal of all things under Christ. It's so sure and so certain that to God, it's, it's the same whether it's a future hope, a present reality, or something in the past. When God looks down on his creation and on his plan of redemption, it's all the same to him. So we know that our future hope is secure. It's as good as done in God's eyes. Now, there's a British scholar, N.T. Wright, that has a book called Surprised by Hope. And he suggests, and, and I agree, that he says the average Christian's belief about heaven and the afterlife are actually quite misguided. He says the average Christian, what they're looking forward to after death is not actually the main thing that the Bible looks forward to after death. In other words, often when we, when we think about what life is going to be like after death, we think of, of going to heaven, we think of sort of sitting on clouds in this like disembodied condition where we're singing, and there's harps, we know there's baby angels, but we're not really sure, like, is that enough to look forward to? That doesn't maybe feel as compelling as it seems like it could. The reality is, as beautiful as heaven is, which heaven is simply where God lives and where his throne is, this heavenly realm that we can't see, our, our hope is not merely in heaven. Instead, our time in heaven is called the intermediate state, which is not a very, you know, incredible term in itself, intermediate state. But what it represents is beautiful, that when we die, we do go and be with the Lord immediately. And yet even that is not our final hope. Our final hope, our ultimate hope, is in all things being made new. The final hope comes to us in Revelation 21, and it says this, John looks in this vision and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The sea in the scriptures is a, is a vision or a, a symbol of judgment. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. 
The vision that's held out before us in Revelation is a vision of a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. When we receive resurrected bodies, we actually have physical bodies for all eternity. We actually live in physical places, a city, a new Jerusalem. If you don't like cities, it could be fairly rural. The word city just means gathering of people. You don't have to live in a high rise, I don't think, if you don't want to. I don't really want to. But instead, it's an embodied reality for all eternity with good food, with good drink, with good friends. Beautiful scenery. This is the reality of our hope for all eternity. You can see it. You can touch it. You can feel it. You can eat it. You can smell it. You can hear it. Our ultimate hope is an embodied life with Christ where everything has been made new. Now, here's the second thing. Worship in eternity. We'll go back to our main text, which is Revelation 7. And remember, we're, we're closing out our worship series. This is our, our tenth week, looking at worship in all of its different forms and different phases through liturgy. But when it really comes down to the end, everything is moved to praise. You see that at the end of the Psalms, each of the five books of the Psalms end with what's called a hallelujah psalm, which just ends in saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then when you get to the end of the book of Psalms, there's actually five hallelujah psalms. And then the very last psalm is just hallelujah, praise the Lord, over and over and over and over. It's just like the psalms have been full of lament. They've been full of all these different types of prayers. But in the end, everything becomes praise of the living God. What we see in Revelation, we see these, these little sort of windows that are open to us of eternity of the new creation, of heaven. And Revelation doesn't work sort of sequentially. It's not like chapter one happens and then chapter two happens and three and four happens. But instead, the return of Christ happens several times in Revelation. What we look at in Revelation 7 is actually not what's happening in the future, but what's happening in the present right now. So this is Revelation 7. After this, I looked. And there was before me a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So this is what's happening right now in heaven. Revelation 7 is sort of opening a window to us of what's actually happening in the heavenly realm. We can't see it, but we know that it's happening. Angels are falling on their faces, praising the name of God. Four living creatures are flying and, and calling out praise of God. And if you're like me, you're like, there are non-human creatures praising God in heaven. That's marvelous. I mean, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> I don't know how we understand their language. That doesn't even make sense to me. But these four living creatures are falling before the throne, crying out in praise. 
And then we see what's called a great multitude. A multitude of people so great that you can't even number it. From every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, singing salvation belongs to our God. Now, what do we see about worship in this passage? What do we see about worship in the heavenly realm that might help us to worship here and now on earth? The first thing is that a multitude of people are present. They represent every nation, every tribe, every language, every people group on earth. And so in other words, in heaven, basically everybody is a minority. There is no majority group in heaven, but rather people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are present worshiping God. It's interesting, too, that we retain our cultural differences and the things that make us unique here on earth remain with us because they're part of how God has made us and created the world. But second, this great multitude, they're hyper-focused on one thing. I mean, think about it. If you have all the food and the drink, all the music, all of the beautiful scenery of the new creation, there's a lot you can do, but in almost every instance in Revelation that you see people doing something, they're worshiping God. They're hyper-focused on the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no more fighting, there's no more competition, no more comparison, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more chronic illness, no more death. And then third, what we see is that everyone is perfectly satisfied in God. I mean, this is a vision of heaven and what's happening right now, so we haven't even gotten to the new creation, the redeemed heavens and earth coming down, and yet still people are perfectly satisfied. So it is true that even if you just went to heaven and didn't receive a resurrected body, you would still be perfectly satisfied every moment of eternity for the rest of time. And yet it even gets better than that. And then fourth, the worship of God is personal, communal, and physical. It's personal in that their hearts and and minds are are caught up in the Holy Spirit as they're praising God and they're falling on their faces. They're overwhelmed and infatuated with the beauty of God. It's communal because you never see a single individual person in the book of Revelation. It's not like one person doing Bible study and prayer on their own, which is great, but we always see a multitude of people together praising God. And then it's physical. And I don't understand this because in this vision, people haven't received their resurrected bodies yet, but they fall on their faces, they lay down their crowns, they're holding palm branches, they're lifting their hands. And so even in the sort of intermediary state in heaven, it's still a physical act of worship. Worship in eternity is beautiful, it's fully engaging, it's perfectly satisfying. But a phrase that we love to say here at Trinity is that eternity has already begun. See, eternity, according to the New Testament, has already begun. You can think about it like this. What's the most significant sort of change in status that happens in life? It's not when you move from life to death physically. Dying is actually not the most significant change of status you experience, but rather coming to Christ is. 
When you move from apart from Christ to one with Christ, that is the most significant change that you experience because even when you die, that status remains the same. You go to be with the Lord forever. You are given a resurrected body eventually, but the real change is from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that means that eternity has already begun here and now. Our entire lives are caught up somewhere between heaven and earth. Now the closing question is, how does worship in eternity, these visions that we get from Revelation, how does this shape our worship, our singing, our music, our experience of God together? How does it change that here and now? One of the principles of the New Testament is that if something exists in the new heavens and new earth, then it's perfect and it's good, and it should be pursued here and now. I'll give you an example. You may know the name William Wilberforce. He was a British uh, parliament leader who's credited with ending the African slave trade in Britain that finally moved across to America. But Wilberforce spent 40 years of his professional life fighting for the end of slavery. For almost all of those years, he was completely opposed by everybody else. And he had a reporter come to him, you know, somewhere year 30, 35, 39, and said, you've been working on this your whole life and nobody agrees with you. When are you gonna give up this fight? And Wilberforce said, or they asked him, why, why are you still fighting for this? And Wilberforce said, because Jesus is coming back. That was his phrase. Because Jesus is coming back, I'm going to fight for what I know is good and true here and now. So in other words, what he realized is that if slavery is unthinkable in the new creation, it better be unthinkable here. If something exists in the new creation, it's good and true and beautiful, and that means that we fight for it here and now. And the same is true of worship. If we look and we see a beautiful picture of worship in the new creation, that means we are to, to do everything we can to align ourselves with it here and now on earth. And listen, I am, the, I am the chief of sinners when it comes to like boring white guy, like hands in pockets during worship or maybe holding a cup of coffee. And I think of myself, I try to imagine myself in that posture in the new heavens and new earth. Right? Angels are falling on their faces. The four living creatures are like flying around, crying, holy, holy, holy. A great multitude of people from every tongue, tribe, every generation, they're praising God. And then I'm like standing there with my coffee, like, it's not my favorite song. I'm going to wait for the next one. And maybe I'll give it like one of these or one of these or like one of those. Man, when you look at the, the vision of worship in the new creation, I mean, there's no holding back. There's no playing it safe. There's no waiting for a, a better song, or I don't really like this style of music. It is passionate, white-hot worship of God all the time. And it doesn't mean that we don't do other stuff in the new creation. It seems that we will have relationships, we'll have jobs, we'll have good work that we're giving ourselves to. And yet the thing that we are going to most want to do is sing the praises of God. I want to close this series by reviewing just a few quick things that we've covered. First, that worship is our one thing activity. 
Remember that from Psalm 27, David says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, gaze upon his beauty, and seek him in his temple every day of my life. Worship is our one thing activity. It's a way for us to align our hearts with the heart of God. And in the new creation, we see people intently focused on this one thing, the presence of God. The quorum Deo, an old Latin phrase that means the presence or the face of God. That's what we're focused on. That's our one thing for all eternity. Second, God is seeking worshipers in the spirit and in truth. In John 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, a time is coming and indeed has now come when people will worship in the spirit and in truth. For these are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. We've said over and over, if you are here, God is seeking you. If you are here, God is drawing you to himself. He's calling out to you. He wants to draw you deeper into his presence and deeper into relationship. And in the new creation, the time is finally and has fully come that we worship in the spirit full of fire and full of passion. And we worship in truth. We're connected to God's word, to reality, to what's good and true. So God is calling you to himself in the spirit and truth. And then the very last thing is that worship is our eternal reality and eternity has already begun. As I said, it seems that we'll live in homes and cities. It seems like we'll have things to do. We're not just floating on clouds in the new creation. And yet picture after picture after picture. It's not just the food and the wine. It's not just the symphonies. It's not just the scenery. It's worship. Worship of God. Everything on earth pales in comparison to the new creation, and everything in the new creation pales in comparison to the glory of God. We were made for worship. Your eternal life will be filled with worship. And God lets us in his holy sanctuary even 